We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Welcome back to another episode of Strange Planet. And uh, tonight we're going to delve into a favorite subject of mine that combines occult symbology and cinema. I'm a huge movie fan. So too is my guest, Robert W. Sullivan IV. He's an historian, philosopher, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, mystic, radio and TV personality, uh, best-selling author, CEO, lawyer, the author of uh, five books, The Royal Arch of Enoch, uh, Cinema Symbolism 1, 2, and 3, and um, a little bird tells me he's hard on work on Volume 4, and a, a work of fiction called A Pact with the Devil. He's a Freemason of Amicable St. John's Lodge, number 25, a 32nd degree uh, of the Scottish Rite, Valley of Baltimore, Orient of Maryland, Robert W. Sullivan IV. Welcome back. How are you? Oh, I'm very well, Richard. Thank you for having me on Strange Planet once again. It's uh, my absolute pleasure to be here with you. Um we're going to do a bit of a departure here. I want to start off, and you may people may notice the uh, the JFK um, presidential limousine I have in the background. I don't know if you can make that out on the camera there, but uh, uh, because when we were discuss uh, on email back and forth trying to figure out you know where we're going to go with uh, tonight's episode, you told me that you have this amazing story that was told related to you um, having to do with the JFK assassination more. Uh, in particular, the great mystery of whatever happened to JFK's brain, because after he was um, after the autopsy, the uh, the brain mysteriously disappeared, or maybe it disappeared between um, the uh, the hospital in Dallas and um, where he was taken to uh, in um, Maryland, I guess. Um, so, who told you this story? First of all. Uh, the story was related to me by a Kennedy family insider many years ago. Um, I cannot divulge this person's identity, uh, but I will say the person is deceased. Um, he or she is no longer alive. And uh, I will say that the person did die under somewhat mysterious circumstances. But the story was told to me and I it, it was it was for starters, it's, it's a it's a story. Um, but I had no reason to doubt it. And the story was related to me 
um, in complete truth. I mean, I had, no, again, no reason to believe that this person was deceiving me. It was not told to me under any pretense of, oh, you know, you got to keep quiet about this or don't tell anyone. I mean, I was in a conversation with this person and, and it just came out. And he's not, he told me or she told me, I know where this, I know where it is. And I don't have firsthand knowledge of this. I did not witness this. Um, but the story must, um, it, it resonates because I just was telling you off camera, I was on a show a couple months ago and I, I told the same story um, and it seemed to have uh, spooked somewhat the hosts of it because uh, I was supposed to do a return appearance and they canceled it all of a sudden. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, and I, I found that very interesting. And, and certainly I have uh, no problem uh, sharing the story with you and your listeners uh, whenever you're ready for it. Okay, so we'll set the scene November 22nd, of course. JFK is murdered in Daly Plaza in Dallas. Um, you know, dead, obviously, before he arrives at the, uh, the hospital in Dallas. Um, his body is then taken to Bethesda Naval Hospital. Um, where was the, the autopsy was performed at Bethesda, or was it in Dallas? No, the, the, uh, it, was, it was under, at the time, the assassination of a president was not a federal crime. Um, so at the time in November of 1963, this was essentially first degree murder um, under the state of Texas. I mean, you would, you would have charged if Lee Harvey Oswald had lived, um, he would have been charged for, you know, with first degree murder um, under Texas state law. There was no federal crime of assassinating the president. Uh, so so if, if, if Oswald had lived, he would have been charged, you know, with murder of the president under, you know, state law. Um, accordingly. Uh, the autopsy should have been done in Dallas. Um, but as you are aware, uh, and I just picked this up just from talking to you, of course, the body was somewhat illegally removed from Parkland Hospital, which is where Kennedy died. This is where he was taken after the, after, you know, Dealey Plaza. And he was flown back to, um, you know, you know, whatever it would have been, uh, the, 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 military base uh or Bethesda in, Naval Hospital yeah well what's the Air Force uh base right in Maryland there is it is it Edwards I, I can't remember not sure name, yeah he would have been flown back to the Air Force base uh right outside DC it's it's right over the river in in, in either Virginia or Maryland and uh, then he would have been taken to Bethesda Naval Hospital and that's where the autopsy was whoops okay so um at what point was the brain supposedly uh, found to be missing found to be missing <laughs> when when did they notice it was missing right well the, the, the during the autopsy kennedy's brain was removed um it was removed from the body and it was actually put in um i believe stored uh, i would presume in formaldehyde and it was actually stored as evidence believe it or not in the national archives um as as potential crime scene evidence um and that that's where it stayed um, and it wasn't until years later, um, during the trial brought by Jim Garrison, he subpoenaed the uh, National Archives to, uh, to, to examine the brain in an effort to try to dissect the track of the, of the head wound. Uh, you know, of course, this is the whole crux of the Kennedy assassination. The Warren, the Warren report has the bullet coming from behind. Of course, if you watch the Zapruder film, your, your naked eyes will tell you that that headshot comes from the front. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Yes. Um, so, so at any rate, the idea was they wanted to, to examine the brain to try to find the track of the bullet to, to determine where it came from. And it was at this point in time that it was, I, that it was announced that the brain had gone missing from the National Archives, presumably whereabouts unknown. 
And it has always been somewhat in the world of conspiracy that, you know, the CIA or J. Edgar Hoover had it removed or had it destroyed because this could have implicated them. Um, of course, that that was the, you know, the, the idea or, or at least a the theory that, um, you know, that there was a sinister force at work that had, had removed the brain. Don't get me wrong. I do believe that there was an assass- uh, a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. I think it's pretty irrefutable. But um, the story that was told to me contradicts that. And um was explained to me that the, the how the brain went missing and the motivation behind it, and it had nothing to do with uh, the CIA or the FBI, or in fact a conspiracy uh, involved the Kennedy, you know, a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. All right. Oh, I just want to point out it's uh, Andrews Air Force Base is where the, the body was flown, just outside of Washington D.C. Okay, so that's correct. Um, in other words, the person close to the Kennedy family told you the story, which kind of refutes the conspiracy aspect that the brain wasn't removed um to hide evidence of you know an assassination or a a conspiracy in other words that he was shot from anywhere but behind uh in the sixth floor of the texas book depository building so what uh what happened to the brain well according to my source and i have every reason to uh believe this person the brain was removed from the national archives by robert f kennedy uh jfk's brother And it was removed in 1967. And Robert Kennedy's motivation for removing the brain was he was exceedingly worried that the brain was going to wind up or parts of the brain were going to be what were going to wind up in a freak show, basically, like as part of a carnival attraction or in the hands of a collector or or something like that. And he was he was definitely afraid um, that the brain was going to fall into the wrong hands and like essentially be put on display somewhere. The brain. Kennedy accessed the National Archives, removed the brain. And a lot of people aren't aware of this. In 1967, John F. Kennedy's body was moved in, that, in, in Arlington National Cemetery. It was buried in one place, but then in 1967, when they were building the permanent monument where he is now, you know, with the flame, uh, this was in 1967, the body was moved. And it was during this removal of the body that Robert Kennedy took the brain out of the National Archives and put it in his brother's coffin. And it was buried with the with his brother where it is today in Arlington National Cemetery. Wow. Just placed what? I don't want to get too um, graphic here, but what, just placed in a in a jar and placed somewhere in the casket or presumably that that's I I I, I never got into with this person. I, I presume it was in some sort of storage jar. Um, the way it was told to me that the jar was essentially placed into the coffin um, and was reinterred in Arlington Cemetery where with the body, um, where it would never be disturbed and it would never fall into the wrong hands of, you know, someone devious or nefarious or who was going to put it on display. I suppose it's possible that the brain was removed. Um, and if that was the case, then at this point in time, this would have disintegrated long ago. But my understanding was the brain was removed in the, you know, in its storage container by Robert Kennedy, president's brother, and placed in the coffin with his, you know, with the deceased, with his deceased brother, when in 1967, when the body was reinterred in Arlington National Cemetery. That is the story that was told to me. I did not witness this firsthand, of course, Mm. I have no firsthand knowledge of this. But that was the story that was related to me. And I had no reason to doubt it. And, and Richard, like I said, this was told to me many years ago. Um, this wasn't something that just popped up or I learned two weeks ago or two years ago. This was told to me many, many years ago. 
And again, this was not told to me under any pretense of don't relate the story to anybody. This is top secret information or, or you know, I work for the government. It just came from a, a Kennedy family friend. And that was the story that was told to me. Well, uh, I mean, it's fascinating. I don't necessarily think that it pr um, proves that there wasn't a conspiracy necessarily. Oh I, oh, I agree. No, I agree with you. I mean, both things can be true. He could have still yes. been shot from the front. Uh, yes, the although you'd have to think that if if Robert Kennedy believed that his brother was the victim of a conspiracy and that Oswald didn't act alone or that were there others involved, that that he would be interested in in using the brain for evidence. But um, anyway, um, let's let's talk about. Um, James Bond, you've, you, you've been re-watching all of the Bond films from, I guess, beginning to end, beginning with, is it Dr. No is the first one, right? Correct, right. All the way up to, well, how far did you get? Right now, right now I'm up to um, the, one, the, 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 one, the, the first one with Timothy Dalton was the last one I watched, so that would have been The Living Daylights. Right, yes. Okay, so what, um, what spurred you to want to watch them all over again? Right. Well, my motivation for, for watching them all over was uh, I just I, I received as a gift the uh, James Bond uh, Blu-ray box set, which was put out in 2020, uh, which has all the movies on it. Uh, it's a wonderful box set. If you're a James Bond fan, you have to have it. And this has all of them all the way from No, Dr. No, all the way up to Spectre. Um, and and it's just a, it's just a great box set. And uh, I'm currently working on some revised editions of my earlier books. So I thought this would be a great opportunity uh, to go back and rewatch all the James Bond movies and just see, you know, see if I missed anything and, and you know, how they've evolved and, and you know, things I might have missed and, and just take a look at them again with a fresh set of eyes. And, yeah, there was some uh, interesting things that I most certainly picked up upon. Um, I, I, I found uh, some some eerie uh, foreshadowing um, in, in, in some of them. For, for example, uh, you know, I, I've come on your show before and I've talked at length about um the you know 9-11 being uh you know prophesized in film and again it's it, it's they are far removed from time i'm not i'm not going to say they're not but there was a somewhat of a curious little 9-11 reference in in both doctor no, let's see it was a thunderball and the one after it which is uh uh you only live twice and uh it, it was in thunderball if, if you recall it's at the meeting of specter it's when it was when blofeld is is introduced um he actually, it's interesting because he actually accuses, uh, if you remember Spectre, they all go by the numbers. Yes. You know, number, one, number one is Blofeld and in, in, in Thunderball number two was Emilio Lar Emil Largo. Um, but anyway, he accuses of number nine and 11 of embezzlement of all things. And, uh, and, and, and during the scene, he actually winds up executing number nine um, and his body drops below. And then when you fast forward to the very next movie, which is You Only Live Twice, he actually winds up killing number 11 in that one. I, I found that just curious of all the numbers in the world to pick number nine and 11. And they want to see if you, if you watch the movie, they're actually sitting next to each other at the table of all things. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So I, I found that very curious. I, I thought, Oh wow. You know, I mean, that kind of made me sit up on my chair a little bit. And then, um, um, and then, then the, what, the one thing that uh, I, I found interesting was the whole thing with this, uh, you know, with with the whole thing with the World Economic Forum going on right now with Davos and Klaus mm -hmm. Schwab and things like that. And if you watch the uh, if if you watch the one with uh, George Lazenby, this is the one that you know is 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 
Her without, Majesty's Secret Service. It's more Her Majesty's Secret Service. This is the one without Roger Moore and Sean Connery. Uh, sort of the in-between lost movie there with George Lazenby. It's interesting because uh, there's a scene in it where um, Bond is investigating uh, Blofeld in Switzerland, of all places. And uh, Blofeld, much like Klaus Schwab, uh, you know, is, is bald-headed, chrome-domed. And in, in, and, in, uh, and in that movie, you can't help but think of the World Economic Forum because Blofeld's whole scheme is uh, to use viruses and vaccines to manipulate humanity. Um, and use technology, and 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 you just watch it, and you think, my goodness gracious! I mean, you know, isn't this what's going on right now with the World Economic Forum? You know, I mean, here's Blofeld, you know, laying out his plan in Switzerland of all places. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just really uncanny. Uh, I, I found that very interesting, and uh, certainly a person you could go back and watch that movie. And then the other one that I, I picked up on was when I was watching, um, and I think this was intentional. Also, I was watching uh, the Man with the Golden Gun. This is the second one of Roger Moore's. I think this is 1975, I want to say. And um, I've been on your show many times talking about how, you know, I call it a cult casting, how these filmmakers will cast people, you know, sort of invoke a past performance or to carry, you know, their baggage from an earlier movie. And it's interesting because when I was watching this, and if you watch The Man with the Golden Gun, the whole movie is essentially about the power of the sun, solar energy. Um, Lee has the golden gun, which is again, a you know, an emblem of the sun, you know, what have you. The whole thing revolves around solar energy. And if you look at it, the, the two people in the movie is Lee, who is the villain, Scaramanga. And then you had the Bond girl in this one, which is Britt Eklund. Um, and what makes this so interesting was it was just the year before, two years before in 73 or 74. It's when uh, Lee and Britt Eklund, of all people, uh, played cinema's uh, probably two most famous sun worshippers of them all in the wicker man uh where this is where lee was lord summer isle christopher lee. yeah yeah right uh christopher lee played lord summer isle and i just couldn't i just couldn't help but think to myself when i was watching the man with the golden gun i thought wow the film um, filmmakers of this must have been a huge fan of the wicker man uh because they're just using the same uh two actors uh eckland and lee uh who arguably just came off of playing uh cinema's most two famous sun worshippers in the wicker man and here they are in this Bond movie, which is all about solar energy. I, I found that couldn't be a coincidence. I found that was very well done. And I completely believe that to be intentional. So, yeah, I'm, I'm right now going back and watching all the Bond movies again. And uh, certainly, uh, certainly it's, it's fun to do. Um, and the um, is there a, a trend or a, not a trend, but in in the Bond films that carries over? Because we've talked about different types of occult symbology. We've talked about hermeticism and we've talked about alchemy and we've talked about Gnosticism. Uh, is there one of those present in the Bond films consistently? Oh, sure. Um, this was talked about. I mean, it, it's 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 you have the same theme essentially in, in all the Bond movies. And it definitely emerges out of the world of hermeticism, alchemy, where you have. In, in, in a nutshell, I mean, they all follow the same track where Bond is, is what you would want to call the solar hero. And he meets the moon, the, 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 the lunar feminine, the sacred feminine. And of course, they wind up. It, it's often sometimes not always it, the, the female is usually not always, but usually in the employee of the villain. And, and Bond is able to persuade her to come to come around to seeing things his way. And of course, they unite, um, you know, sexually, the union of opposites, you know, this is what you would call it in alchemy, coincidentia oppositorum. And of course, after this occurs, this now spiritually equips Bond, 007, John D, uh, to go on and defeat the over-the-top Bond villain. Um, this is the theme that's 
prevalent throughout the, the, the stories. And yes, I mean, this comes completely out of the world of uh, hermeticism, alchemy, Gnosticism. Um, and again, this should really come as no surprise to anybody. Um, I've been on your show before talking about the Aleister Crowley influence upon Ian Fleming, you know, and the other people in Fleming's crowd, Dennis Wheatley, Roald Dahl, uh, people like that. Robert, we'll take a quick time out, come back. I want to um, circle back to uh, Ian Fleming and Aleister Crowley and John D, who you mentioned as well. Stay sure. with us. Game Pass. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're now crossing a zone of turbulence. Please return your seats and food trays to their upright position and make sure your carry-on luggage is safely stowed. You're about to leave everything you know behind. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Strange Planet. And we are back with Robert W. Sullivan IV, and we're talking about uh, cinema, uh, symbology in cinema. And um, we were talking about James Bond. Um, there is a kind of a hermeticism that, uh, that, that's a common thread throughout the, um, the James Bond franchise, if you will. Um, you were mentioning John D, and I know we, I think we've talked about this before, but this is a fascinating character, an historical character. Um, he was kind of Queen Elizabeth I's, what, astrologer, chief spy? Uh, would that be fair to call him a, a spy? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Elizabeth's spy master was a guy named Sir Francis Walsingham. But Dee went on espionage, went on an espionage mission for her. And this was, I, 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 I get asked this. I said, oh, you say Dee was a spy, but when was he a spy? The, the answer is um, he toured the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and he really was sent there to wreak havoc with Rudolf II. Um, Rudolf II was into the occult arts and into mysticism. And uh, D went there and just wreaked havoc with him, uh, was constantly giving him astrological pro you know, prognostications that were negative, that were very dire, um, that were intended to drive him insane or make him sick. And uh, th this was what you know, D's chief spy mission was, was essentially to uh, undermine uh, the Holy Roman Empire. And, and Rudolf II was warned about this. Man, many of his advisors said, you know, you stay away from this guy. Um, you know, you know, this guy's bad news. This guy, John Dee, is bad news. But uh, of course, he did. He was eventually given an audience with uh, Rudolf II. And um, again, his, his his entire mission was sort of to undermine uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. And John Dee, Queen Elizabeth I's um, astrologer, sometimes spy, was the inspiration for 007. How did that come about? Right. Well, that's the call letters for James Bond, which is 007. Uh, they come from John D. Uh, when he would write espionage correspondences back to the Queen, uh, he would sign them 007007. And if you look at the sigil, it's actually meant to look like spyglasses. It's two circles with a line over them and then a line down the side. It looks like a seven. And of course, the symbol denotes that he was her eyes in the field and that the correspondent was for her eyes only. 
So, of course, Fleming uh, took this and ran with it. And uh, this is why James Bond is 007. It's an homage uh, of reference to uh, Queen Elizabeth's first spy, you know, Dr. John D himself. Now, Ian Fleming worked with MI6, right? During the war, right, he was, Second World War? He was in British counterintelligence during World War II, and he handled Aleister Crowley also during World War II. Yes, when you say handled Aleister Crowley, Crowley was employed by the Allies to what? Um, to uh, cast spells against the Axis powers? Uh, he, 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 he served as uh, a spy both for the British government in World War I and World War II. Uh, he used his secret societies to penetrate uh, German secret societies and gain influence. Uh, he did. He 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 tried to uh, he tried to get access to Rudolf Hess uh, after he was captured. Um, he went to Fleming, and Fleming went to Churchill. Uh, depends on who you want to listen to. The the meeting was Crowley was going to perform rituals in front of Hess. Of course, Hess was a dedicated occultist and astrologer, and Crowley thought that he could scare him and perhaps you know uh, coax information out of him about the Nazis. Um, some people say the meeting happened. Most people agree that it did not happen. Uh, but no, he he worked with British intelligence and, uh, you know, tried, tried to gather as much information he can about the Germans, uh, often posing as a German sympathizer. Um, but he was actually, you know, a, a double agent, as it were. Fascinating, fascinating chapter. And, and uh, you, will, you, will, you will find also uh, a Crowley influence on Fleming. Uh, the, the two James Bond vil, vil, villains are, are somewhat loosely based on Crowley. Uh, Blofeld, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see Crowley's fingerprints on Blofeld, specifically in the uh, novel and the movie, the one we were mentioning, uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, if you recall, Blofeld was trying to get himself um, a coat of arms. He was trying to get himself to be recognized as the, as the Count de Blowshaw, uh, basically nobility. And uh, this reflects Crowley when he was in Cairo. Crowley ran around calling himself Lord Boleskin and pretending to be Scottish nobility. Of course, he wasn't. Uh, so that rubs off on the Blofeld character. And Crowley was also a sadomasochist. And uh, in the in the James Bond story, Casino Royale, uh, the villain, Le Chiff, is also a sadomasochist. And uh, th those came directly from Aleister Crowley. Oh, wow. Very cool. I learned so much from you, Robert. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's dive into um, uh, some cinema here. Halloween ends. This is the, uh, I guess it's the uh, the climax, the final installment of the, and in the saga of Michael Myers and the uh, the Halloween franchise. I don't know. I lost count how many movies there were in the franchise. There's a lot of them. Yes. Um, what what what's going on in terms of occult symbology in Halloween ends? Yeah, well, there's a lot going on. Let me let me just predicate it. They they did three movies lately of Halloween. They did Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills, and Halloween Ends, which was the last one. These three movies retconned out of existence all the previous Halloween movies up until one. Um, so you have Halloween one, and then you go to 18, Kills, and Ends. Um, in that timeline, none of the other movies are canon. Um, so they, they retconned out the other movies. And... Uh, it became very apparent when watching uh, Halloween 2018 that the movie that the movie makers were completely delving into, you know, symbolism and all, all kind of, you know, esoteric themes. And when they got around to ends, uh, this one going the last one, I mean, this thing was just overloaded, um, you know, with with hidden things. Um, the, the movie really didn't go over well with a lot of Halloween fans because the complaint was there was a lot of 
not a lot of Michael Myers in it, but if, if you watch it very carefully, I mean, you'll see all kind of references to other John Carpenter movies. Um, I mean, you have the whole idea of the Jungian shadow um, uh, coming to life. Um, this is a theme explored in movies like Black Swan and <coughs> Kubrick's The Shining. Um, I just, I mean, there's all sorts of references, um, you know, that the movie makers are playing with people. If, if you watch the movie, the, you'll notice that the opening credits are the periwinkle blue. Um, this is a reference to the Halloween three um, opening credits, which are also periwinkle blue. And, and that, that, that it references, it, it's, it's a reference to several movies. One is Halloween three, because um, if you watch that movie, um, you, you'll realize that the masks, that the mask maker Connell Cochran was making were pure evil. And that was the source of the evil. And if you watch Halloween ends, you're left with the conclusion that Michael Myers was essentially a man. And it was the mask that was possessed of evil, which was keeping him going, which was the source of his evil. Um, the villain in, in, in Halloween three is Connell Cochran. Um, the villain in, in Halloween ends is Corey Cunningham. CC C is the third letter out of the alphabet. Um, of course you have uh, C and C three, three, 33, um, this is a reference to the moon. Um, and if you watch Halloween Ends, you will see references to tarot, to tarot cards all over the place in this thing. Uh, the moon, the devil, the uh, the the death card. Um, these are cited frequently uh, in Halloween Ends um, and, and with great effect, I might add. Um, you have, of course, when you if you're a fan of the Halloween franchise and you go back to Halloween one, um, you will completely recognize or understand that. Uh, the movie Psycho by Hitchcock was a tremendous influence on, on this on this film. And again, in Halloween Ends, uh, we have the periwinkle blue credits and we have the villain, Corey Cunningham, being dominated by an overbearing mother, uh, you know, the evil mother archetype. And of course, this is a reference to Mrs. Bates uh, in Psycho. And if you go back and watch Psycho, you'll realize uh, that, you know, the burial dress that she was put in was periwinkle blue. It's mentioned in there. Wow. So, of course, when you watch Halloween Ends, the nightgown that the mother's wearing is, of course, periwinkle blue. The reference to uh, uh, Psycho. I thought that was very well done. And, um, oh, my goodness, uh, references, uh, citations all over the place to earlier John Carpenter movies. I mean, we have The Fog with the radio station. Uh, Christine, uh, that that's in there. Um, we have uh, they live uh, with Roddy Piper. The fight with him and Michael Keith. Um, that goes on forever. <laughs> yeah, that goes on forever, and that that's at the uh, end of Halloween. Uh, Halloween ends with Laurie fighting with uh, Michael Myers. And uh, the one that was really good, I thought that most people missed was uh, the homeless person who was sort of the thrall for Michael Myers. Uh, was was sort of the watchman for him. Um, and that's, of course, Prince of Darkness, where Alice Cooper was the homeless person who was sort of keeping an eye on the evil inside the church, uh, the liquid Satan, as it were. So I thought Halloween ends. I mean, this was a movie when I first watched it. I was sit sitting back. Uh, I've mentioned this on your show, you know, on your shows previously. You know, when I watch a movie for the first time, I kind of watch it for entertainment value. But this one, when I watched Halloween ends for the first time back in October, I mean, this just started jumping off the screen with me. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness. You know, I can't wait to watch this thing again and even a second and third or fourth time because, I mean, this was one of those movies that was just, you know, begging to be analyzed and just had so much going on in it. I mean, again, it, it reminds me of a movie like The Shining or Black Swan where, I mean, it became very, very apparent to me, you know, watching it, um, that the filmmakers were really, you know, playing around with the viewer's subconscious mind with referencing things, using these occult themes. And this one, uh, the, the tarot, the deck of the tarot was very omnipresent. And I thought I liked the movie. I thought it was a very well-made movie. And uh, 
it was one that I, I, I really, I really am looking forward to writing about. And uh, I certainly, you know, like dissecting it on, uh, on shows. So the, either the director or the, the, whoever wrote the screenplay decided that this was also going to be a, an homage to John Carpenter as well. Oh yes. Um, there's no question about it. Um, you know, you, you will clearly see, uh, references, uh, to other John Carpenter movies. And, um, like I said, you know, it's, it's one of those movies that, you know, you have, um, you know, and then there's, I mean, I didn't mention this just on my last bit, but there's, um, it's, it's one of those Halloween, it, it, it I described the movie if, I feel like as though if, 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 um, David Lynch made a Halloween movie, this would be it, uh, because it's very surreal also. And it, and it plays with the viewer where you are now questioning what's going on on the screen. And it's kind of, like I said, with the shining, it reminds me of the shining and black swan in that, you know, but like, like, let's take the shining, you know, are the ghosts really there or are they just figments of Jack Torrance's imagination? It's the same thing with this. You, you will start, if you watch and you pay attention to it, you will start asking yourself, wait a minute, is Michael Myers really there? Or is Michael Myers just a figment of this kid's imag imagination? Um, and, and, and the filmmakers really, really play around with that. And again, it kind of reminds me of a movie uh, like David Lynch. And if, and if you watch it and you've seen a movie like Lost Highway, um, you will clearly see, again, references to, to Lynch's Lost Highway in this. And again, it's the idea of, you know, is, is this really happening or is it a figment of this kid's imagination? And I thought it works very well. All right, from one slasher movie to another, when we come back, we'll take a look at Pearl, otherwise known as an extraordinary origin story. Robert W. Sullivan IV stays with us as we discuss uh, cinema symbology. Welcome back, Welcome back. to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. All right, Robert. So, um, Pearl, extraordinary origin story. Uh, this is directed by Ty West. And uh, just tell us a little bit about the, well, this takes place during the, uh, the, the influenza pandemic of 1918, right? Absolutely. And when you watch it, you will clearly see an overlap. I mean, this movie is, is set there because it is clearly citing the COVID lockdowns and the mask wearing. Um, it's a movie by Ty West. I'm a huge fan of his. His, his movies... Unfortunately, we don't get a lot of play. I, I, I'm a huge, like I said, I, I, I'm a fan of his work. Um, I he had him. He made a movie several years ago called uh, House of the Devil, which explored the uh, satanic panic of the 1980s. It's a very well-made movie. It's, it's an excellent film. Fortunately, it just doesn't get the uh, you know love that it should, I suppose. But he 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 recently released a movie called X. I saw them out of order, um, and X was the first movie in this trilogy that he's doing. The second movie is called Pearl. Which is a which is an origin story of one of the characters in X, this very bizarre old uh, woman on this uh, farm, and we get to see you know her her origin in this in this movie Pearl. It's played by Mia Goth, and my goodness gracious, um, you know you want to talk about the Academy Awards not uh, giving someone their due? I mean, my God, you watch this movie, and it's like how can Mia Goth not possibly get nominated for an Oscar in this movie? I mean, it's just amazing. She, I mean, it's one of the most amazing acting performances I've ever seen. I mean, if Natalie Portman got nominated for Black Swan and won. Mia Goth should have easily have been nominated for, for Pearl. Um, she plays as an, a psychopath, essentially. And uh, um, like I said, it's part of a trilogy. X was the first movie. Pearl is the second. I believe the third movie is coming out this year called Maxine, I want to say. So I'm looking very forward to that, much forward to that. But no, I mean, if, if you watch Pearl, um, very alchemical. 
Uh, again, we, we have the, the transition of self from sort of this lonely, um, disturbed farm girl into a full-blown psychopath. Um, and again, this is denoted with the color red. Uh, we have the little homage there with the goat of Mendes. This is an A24 film uh, where she, after she murders, she kind of uh, goes up and greets the goat. Um, A24 is the company that put out The Witch by Roger Eggers. And uh, if you've seen that, I'm a very big fan of that movie as well. Um, of course, the Black Philip goat uh, is a, a total homage to uh, the goat of Mendes, Baphomet, mm-hmm. um, which actually becomes the devil in the movie, if you've ever seen it. Um, and again, this and Pearl was an A24 movie, so I, I couldn't help but think that one was citing the other. And uh, it's, a, it's a great film. Uh, um, I mean, again, you know, I just loved it how they referenced um, some of the earlier works. Um, in this case, we have Polanski. Um, if, 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 you're, if you're a Polanski fan like I am, um, and you've seen a movie, uh, his movie Repulsion, um, this was Polanski's answer to Hitchcock's Psycho. Um, and, and if you've watched Repulsion, you will realize, um, and it's not concealed, I mean, it's pretty obvious that um, the mental deterioration of the young woman played by Catherine Deneuve in, um, in Repulsion is represented by a decaying, decaying meat with maggots and rot in it. Um, and Ty West used the same, uses the same trick in this movie. Um, there is a, a roasted pig that is brought over and eventually gets infested with maggots and, and decay and rots away. And of course, this symbolizes uh, Pearl's mental deterioration as well. And that is a, a total citation uh, to Polanski's uh, repulsion. Um, and it works very effectively. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's quite repulsive to watch in the film, but that's where West is going with it. And again, it's 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 just a it's just a very uh, creepy movie. Um, if you're into horror, if you're into suspense, if you're into thriller, you should like it. Um, if you're a fan of The Shining or Black, again Black Swan, this movie is for you. Um, and again, um, I really felt as though uh, Mia Goth got snubbed on it because I found her performance uh, was just, you know, very captivating. I couldn't I couldn't take my eyes off the screen when whenever she was on, I was just completely blown away by it. Whether we're talking about the um... The, the, the occult symbology like Gnosticism or Hermeticism or occult casting where um, a particular character may, it may just be a, a cameo to sort of harken back to an earlier role. Uh, or you talked about in Halloween and uh, the use of certain colors and so forth. I mean, that's pretty subtle stuff. A lot of it. I mean, who is that intended for? I mean, other than Robert W. Sullivan, the fourth, who's, and maybe some, you know, students of film. Who's going to pick up on that? And what is the purpose of putting it in there? Well, it it it, it layers the movie for starters. It makes the movie sublime. Um, it, it turns it into artwork. It's like you know how many books are written about decoding, you know, da Vin- you know, Da Vinci's paintings. It's the sort. It's the same sort of uh, idea behind it. It turns the movie into a work of art, a, a multi-layered work of art. Um, and it's a challenge to to um, decode this stuff. Like I said, it's like playing a game of chess. To the passive viewer who's not aware of it, um, it's meant for them as well, but it's meant for their subconscious mind. They will take it in um, and they will process it subconsciously and uh, not uh, not aware um, of of the of the impression that's being made upon them. Um, and again. It's, the movies that do it properly um, are, you know, you know, if, if they if it's done properly, these movies are, you know, it's like drawing a moth to a flame. Um, it, it it will 
pull you in. I mean, it's you you watch um, the very first Halloween movie. I mean, it's it's the same sort of thing. You go back to 1978. I mean, you have very archetypal images. I mean, you have the personification of evil with Michael Myers stalking on the one night of the year where evil is is allowed to roam free. This is all archetypal. This represents the death of the sun. Of course, the archetypal imagery, you know, if, you, if you're into hermeticism, uh, this comes from the heavens above. Um, as above, so below. So the idea is if, if, if you're using this, this heavenly imagery, these archetypes, um, and showing it to people, it's, it's connecting them to an ethereal realm, whether they're aware of it or not, and it's manipulating them subconsciously. I'm trained to see it. I mean, I've trained myself to look for it. Um, and again, this, Richard, is one of the reasons why I wrote my books, because to me, and I've seen enough of it to know that I'm well beyond the coincidence, you know, in this, that it's, it's just astounding me the lengths that these guys will, I mean, especially the guys who are very sophisticated, will go to embed their movies, to layer the movies with this stuff. And it, it just works so effectively. Um, and again, a lot of people don't pick up on, I'm with you there. I mean, a lot of people don't pick up this up on this consciously. Um, if you study the movie and you start delving into the occult sciences and the hermetic arts and alchemy, um, you'll definitely be able to pick up on this stuff. Yeah, well, it gives me a, uh... I mean, I have a great appreciation for directors. I mean, they're, you have to be on almost the genius level, I would think, and, and, and knowledgeable in so many different disciplines. Um, but now I even respect them more because, I mean, their knowledge, uh, you know, in order to layer these films with symbolism and so forth, uh, it's just astounding. Um, we were talking about trends in, in, um, in, um, in movies, the last time you were on, uh, what's happening in terms of, I don't know, symbology or uh, the direction of films now that, that, that you've picked up on? What, the one thing I've noticed more than any other is, uh, and I suppose this comes from being a horror buff, is any time right now, at least of recent, and at least the movies I've seen, anytime you're dealing with a movie involving a haunted house of some kind, there will inevitably be an homage to The Shining in there. Um, this seems to be the big thing going on. Uh, the two movies that jump to mind are, uh, I mean, they're they're new, relatively new, was uh, The Conjuring Part 2, um, which was, um, I think came out about five or six, seven years ago now. This was, I think, 2016. Um, and again, this was the one where there was the haunted house in England. Um, and uh, there, there, there is a clear, a clear, reference to uh, Kubrick's The Shining in there. I think there's more than one, but the, the one that I remember off the top of my head right now is when the demon Valak um, goes into the Warren's home um, and is standing at the end of the hallway. Um, that is intentionally designed to recall The Shining where Danny sees the two twins standing at the end of the hallway. If you think I'm stretching this, um, if you pull up the scene uh, where, where Danny is looking at the twins in, in the overlook and you pull up the scene where uh, Elizabeth Warren is looking at Valak, the demon Valak dressed at the nun at the end of the hallway, uh, something will become very apparent to you. And that is the wallpaper uh, in the Warren's home in their hallway is the identical wallpaper uh, in the overlook hotel. Um, so that is a clear reference to the shining. Um, and then you'll find this again uh, where uh, in, in a movie more recently, this was a Guillermo de Toro movie, uh, Scary scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Uh, there is, again, another uh, Shining uh, reference in there. And it's the same sort of thing where uh, we have a long hallway and a monster, a 
approaching from this long hallway. And again, you're directed, your, your mind is, is, is consciously or, or subconsciously is directed back to Kubrick's The Shining. And we know this because right before that scene, uh, there, there's a scene where it's, it takes place in a hospital. And I think they're looking at the, uh, the directory in the hospital. And I think that one of the rooms they're looking for is the red room. Um, and of course, <laughs> you know, you know where red I'm rum. going with red, this. Rum. red rum. murder. Yeah, of course, red rum. Exactly. Um, and again, this is a, a a total direction of your mind back to uh, Kubrick's Shining. So yeah, the the one trend that I'm noticing is is that if you're dealing, if a, if a director right now wants to make a movie involving a haunted house, um, there inevitably seems to be a reference in there, a, cit a citation to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining quick word on this. I just learned recently uh, that at one time, the Jack Torrance character in The Shining, Robin Williams was considered for that role. Have you heard that? And what do you th how do you think that movie would have, because I think in the book, Jack Torrance is kind of a more, um, uh, more of a likable, relatable character. Do you think Robin Williams would have been a good choice to play Jack Torrance instead of Jack Nicholson? The, 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 that was the, one of Stephen King's main complaints about it was in, in the novel, the Torrance character is it's just a normal, fun-loving guy who gets turned into this axe murderer. If you watch Kubrick's movie, you have Jack Nicholson, who starts pretty much as a weirdo, um, sort of this strange character who's kind of very eccentric and kind of mean-spirited towards his wife and kids and becomes even stranger. This was King's one of his big gripes with it. I don't I like Nicholson in the movie. It's kind of hard for me to picture Williams in it. But yeah, I mean, I, I could I guess I, if I picture in my mind's eye, Robin Williams. Yeah, I, I think he could have pulled it off. I mean, I certainly think he, he had the acting chops for it. Uh, but, you know, I, I like Nicholson's performance as well. I know King didn't, but I, I, I like Kubrick's movie. But I understand Kubrick's movie isn't what King wanted. But I like Kubrick's movie because it works on a, it's it's a very it's very esoteric and that appeals to me all right so we'll look forward to cinema symbolism number four and uh, in the meantime direct us to a website yeah yeah well thank you richard for having me on straight plant strange planet it's my pleasure it was my pleasure to be here my my website is my name uh, if you're interested in me or my books or want more information just go there it's uh, my name which is robert w sullivan the fourth uh so my website is just that it's www robert w sullivan and then the letter I, the letter V, Roman numerals for the fourth, Robert W. Sullivan, IV.com. Uh, there's links to purchase the books, information about me, uh, information about shows that I'm coming on, uh, podcasts. Um, it's a very easy site to navigate. Just go there, www.robertwsullivaniv.com. And I've got the link in the episode notes. And we're going to get you on coast soon. So, oh, it sounds great. Talk soon. All right, Robert, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, thank you, Richard. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.